Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello and welcome to the Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. In this week's episode, Jay and I discuss Rand Paul's official announcement that he is, in fact, running for president. We look at his plan to expand the GOP coalition, his chances, slim to none, and his backup plan. Iran, where Supreme Leader Khomeini says there will be no deal with the U.S. unless all economic sanctions against Iran are lifted right away. He also made it clear that weapons inspectors will not have access to Iranian military sites. Does this doom a deal? If these are the conditions, let's hope so. And what, if anything, government can do to minimize what seems to be an alarming trend of police brutality? Our lead story for this week is Rand Paul, who on Tuesday officially announced his own White House bid, making him the second presidential candidate, though Hillary Clinton should be announcing her candidacy today. And we're, we're awaiting the call from Hillary Clinton. We're expecting she will announce on our show, uh, just so our listeners can stay tuned. But, yes, yeah. that, should be, that should be very exciting. Said via social media, and this is kind of like social media. So, yeah. You know, and of course, Rand Paul will be our... Uh, I believe our first ever ophthalmologist candidate, as far as I know. Yeah, could be. So there's there is that. I'm not really sure what that what that signifies. But uh, so, what do you think about Rand Paul as a Republican contender for the nomination? Well, I, I'd say two things. First, uh, more the merrier as far as primaries go. I, I think that's great. Let's have as many voices and ideas out there. Um, secondly. Um, if if you're looking for my personal take on this, uh, you know I I like the libertarian uh, kind of uh, kind of attitude just because that's sort of that's sort of where I'm coming from. Um, that said, and we've talked about this before. For every two or three really good uh, ideas Rand Paul has, he's also got two or three that are just just completely bonkers. Um, so that's. Yeah. That's sort of the. <laughs> I think the I think whenever a candidate is being anointed by the media as the most interesting candidate, that does not bode well for that person's campaign. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and I would say I, I don't think uh, Rand Paul will win. And I, I think Rand Paul knows enough that you know, having been a veteran of, of his dad's what three or four <laughs> for many uh, presidential campaigns, uh, he knows he won't win. Uh, but he's in it for the uh, to push the ideas. Um, uh, you know what what troubles me most uh, would be the the foreign policy stuff. Um, Before we get into that, I want to I, I think I want to disagree with you. I I don't know that he absolutely thinks that he won't win. I think that at least partially he believes that he can assemble a coalition that will give him a fighting chance. Uh, not only the sort of hardcore Republican voters who, if it's a choice between, well, essentially anyone and Hillary Clinton, will probably vote for anyone just to keep uh, Hillary Clinton out of the White House. But uh, also he's been trying to target uh, some groups that aren't normal 
uh, Republican groups. He's been trying to target the black audiences, and of course, uh, the the GOP presidential vote when it comes to minorities is is you know is pretty bad, and so he mm-hmm. certainly can probably expect to see some gains over, say, like a a Mitt Romney or something like that. And so I think he believes that he can expand the Republican coalition. And honestly, there are some uh, political scientists who say that while the Republicans can do a great job in in terms of taking Congress, that they don't seem to have quite the national coalition to be able to get over the hump and take the uh, White House. Well, I think that's that's probably right, but I'd also say that those political scientists scientists are wrong, and that they think Rand Paul's the guy to do it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I again, he can reach out to minorities. I don't know that that actually uh, translates into votes down the line. Uh, he does have more of appeal to what I would call sort of the the, the folks who are the the more independent. Uh, uh, Ross Perot type voters, uh, the ones who would maybe just sit out, sit home, uh, uh, who are, are uh, in many senses, uh, I don't know if the word's libertarian, more just uh, opt out. Anti-government, I guess. That's um, part of his problem, I think, is that a lot of, the, a lot of his natural coalition uh, is – people who don't tend to vote. And so getting them to the polls, he's certainly going to be, I would think, a lot more popular with younger voters than a lot of Republican candidates often are. But getting those people out to the polls and away from their whatever, their uh, their bongs and so forth might be uh, a bit of a challenge because he, of well, course, is know, in favor that, of marijuana legalization. Yeah, exactly. There is there is the appeal to sort of the tinfoil hat crowd, which is not always the, the most reliable voting base. Um uh, you know, his father um, also always did well among the uh, insane. Sort of the, yeah, Sorry. among the crazy. Um, for example, he always he always uh, polled highest at the uh, CPAC straw poll, uh, and mostly because he bust in all these people uh, who who sort of had plenty of time to just go to CPAC and you know weren't weren't you know busy with work or family or other commitments. Um, uh, but you know that never translated into anything. Right. So. Um, no, I, I would say all uh, you know. I think as a Republican, I welcome him to the uh, to the debate because I think he's 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 got some good things to talk about, and I like uh, the idea that sort of a libertarian uh, sense is is being out uh, is being put out there. Um, uh, well, I think I think it's interesting uh, that sort of the uh, I guess what you would call the evolution of Rand Paul. He started out kind of I think as sort of a Ron Paul with a human, less insane face, um, but still, you know, pretty clearly libertarian on a lot of issues. And yet, over time, he's obviously, I think, obviously moderated, changed, you might say flip-flopped on some of his views to make himself uh, more of a palatable candidate to the Republican mainstream. And in his uh, uh, announcement tweet, uh, he said, uh, the media tells you, that we should choose a GOP nominee with a track record full of sellouts, compromises, and betrayals. And I thought, well, Rand, you're that nominee. <laughs> I mean, oh, and- I don't know. I, I would say he hasn't uh, sold out uh, quite as much as others. Uh, he has sort of vocally tried to uh, bring himself closer to the mainstream uh, Republican view on foreign policy stuff. I mean, before he was very much a... Uh, you'd, you'd say isolationist, uh, and I think he's he's moderated there. 
uh, indicating that uh, he wouldn't intervene uh, in some cases and has indicated support for Israel, which is for any Paul campaign, that's a little bit of a sticking point. Um, uh, you know, his, his father was um, involved or drew support, at least let's put it this way, drew support from uh, some folks who could, who could reasonably be described as anti-Semitic. Um, so I, you know, I, I think, yeah, he's he's coming back into the mainstream, but I I don't think uh, I don't think he's going to be able to to bring it home. But uh, it's going to be fun because, like I said, for every really good idea, he's got some some really goofy ones too. So I, I think it would be interesting. I, I don't think I don't think he'll be the nominee either. But if he and Hillary, and I think Hillary will be the nominee on the other side. Those would be perhaps the two most thin skinned, uh, least media friendly nominees that we've had in in recent history. I mean, Hillary Clinton has a history of paranoia and pretty obviously not suffering what she would term the fools, uh, not publicly, she wouldn't say it, in the media very, uh, very gladly. But uh, Rand Paul also uh, is even admitted, he said, I've been universally testy and short-tempered with people. And I think part of it is because interviewers are calling him on his changes of stance, and he doesn't like that. And uh, it's very difficult for someone with who's so thin-skinned, I think, to get through the the gauntlet of a uh, of a presidential campaign. I don't think that I think that's something that really uh, may hurt him in the longer well, run. Uh, well, and you're you're bringing up this is sort of a universal thing in the geo not well, not universal, but uh, it's we've got another first-term senator running, um, and and as we've said before, president a presidential election is something entirely different. Uh, than any sort of senatorial election, um, so uh, yeah, it's with uh, Ron Paul, uh, Rand Paul, uh, Ted Cruz, and uh, as we're likely to hear tomorrow, Marco Rubio. Um, we have three very you know junior senators, <laughs> and uh, they may or may not be ready for prime time. Uh, in in uh, dealing with with some of what you have to deal with running for right. president. Now, Rand Paul does have, or at least he's trying to craft the backup plan, uh, as as you may may have heard. Under Kentucky law, Kentucky state law, you're not allowed to appear on the ballot twice. And so that what that means, therefore, is that under current Kentucky law, Rand Paul would not be able to run for president of the United States and also run for Senate, which is right. kind of an important thing because his chances of winning, of course, are, are not that great. So he needs to be on the ballot for Senate. So what he is trying to do is to get Kentucky to or the Republican Party in Kentucky to change their process so that they go with a presidential caucus instead of a primary. And so therefore he wouldn't appear on the ballot twice. Well, that's tricky. Yeah. It, well, it, now Democrats in Kentucky, of course, are screaming their heads off about how he's not, uh, uh, you know, he he's not following the law and so forth. Well, I'd say he, he's just trying to change the law for his Right. Advantage. No, I don't think that's not following the law. Yeah. yeah. That's... But so, yeah, and it looks like actually the state GOP seems to be willing to go along with this for understandable reasons. They want to keep, I think, Rand Paul as their uh, – as, as their senator. And so it looks like uh, they, they may actually, uh, well, they're going to have a vote, I believe, to change from a presidential primary to a caucus and all just because they want to make sure that Rand Paul stays uh, a senator from Kentucky after he loses the Republican presidential nomination. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess if they figured out that's the way to do it, uh, um, yeah, I guess we'll more, more power to them. And uh, as you say, there's nothing – 
necessarily illegal about that, wanting to change the law. And and, and this is something I think a lot of people don't don't think about. But yeah, party primaries uh, are sort of a funny animal in that uh, the parties can sort of make a lot of their own rules as, as to how they're governed. Absolutely. So it's important to have a backup plan. I think that's the key lesson to take away from that. Uh, yep. Yep. All right. Moving on to uh, uh, foreign policy. Uh, this week, actually on Thursday, uh, the Ar- Iranian Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, I always get that name wrong, I want to say Khomeini. Not to be confused with Khomeini. Yes. Uh, our, totally different guy. Yes, the late and non-beloved. Anyway, he, uh, on Thursday, he mentioned, uh, or mentioned, he demanded, I'm sorry, if you're an Ayatollah, you don't mention, you demand. He demanded that all sanctions on Iran be lifted at the same time that any agreement uh, would be signed about uh, nuclear power, uh, nuclear uh, giving giving away essentially their centrifuges or putting them away, uh, basically putting or them, yes, putting them yeah, turning turning them to off. Yes, <laughs> yeah, putting them in mothballs. Not that there are actually any mothballs involved. And this is sort of a big problem in that for uh, well. Through the course of the negotiations, the uh, State Department and and, uh, and and I was going to call him Senator Kerry, um, John Kerry, have been saying that sanctions would be suspended in phases as we made sure that Iran was actually meeting the the requirements uh, for inspectors and dismantling their nuclear program and that sort of thing. And so, uh, this is, throws a monkey wrench into the works, I think. So, what, what was your take on this, Jay? Well, you know, you uh, you don't get to be called the supreme leader for nothing. Um, and that's sort of, I think that's it's a great title. The, yeah, the problem that that we we have when you're when you're uh, trying to bargain with someone whose uh, title is supreme leader, uh, and then say, well, we've negotiated this, and this is how it's going to work. Um, the Iranians were pretty quick out of the box on this, saying, uh, no, the deal says uh, we get all sanctions lifted right away. Uh, to which we're saying, what? Uh, and then there's this bizarre sort of. You know, we're going to work out all the details later, um, which to me, I mean, the lifting of the sanctions, that's not a detail. That's sort of a, a fundamental piece of whatever this agreement is. Yes. Um, I mean, to me, it, it um, again, looks like this is the this is the perfect sort of international agreement for in the the, the age of, of participation trophies. Um, you know, it's it's like, hey, we've you know, congratulations, you've got an agreement. Um and uh, well, we haven't really agreed to to much. Right. You know, can you... There, there was a there was a great quote that I read uh, where uh, Khomeini said, "I agree to the negotiations and support it, and still support the negotiations." He said this to chance of death of America in the background. And exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our new partners in peace. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and it, it's just the the idea that that anyone uh, thinks that. There's going to be any sort of um, uh, Iranian uh, uh, compliance with this. I think it's just really far-fetched. Well, they haven't complied with anything. And um, you know, there's a little pieces of, of this that I don't know that, that have been made that public. There was a uh, Henry Kissinger and George Schultz, both of who are two pretty serious dudes, uh, had a, a big piece in the Wall Street Journal last week um, about the Iran deal and, and mentions that – you know, one of these, the inspection provision is that they are voluntary inspections. Um, <laughs> if they, uh, the Iranians 
uh, decide not to volunteer to have things inspected anymore, uh, they won't. And, and that's not a breach of the treaty. That's yep. just sort of the agreement. That's just sort of. We should point. I should point out as well. The other thing that the supreme leader said was that uh, military sites would not be open for inspection, and so that's a big problem. But I mean, these are two pretty major issues, certainly. But, and again, I don't know if there's actually going to be a deal they have until uh, June 30th. That was kind of the semi-hard deadline for coming up with a deal. But I still think it's a good thing to at least be in talks. And maybe this won't maybe this won't lead to anything ultimately. But I like the fact that we're at least engaging with them. Yeah. See, I'd, I'd uh, differ with you. Well, first of all, I was going to ask, what's, what's your opinion of the deal now? I mean, you were sort of gung-ho last week and now it is well it's good we're still talking well last week i wouldn't say i was gung-ho i thought it was better than nothing i still think it's better than nothing though given these provisions i would hope that the the white house would not sign on to this deal now there was something a a little bit of a a difference in opinion the uh, iranian president said that what the supreme leader meant was that sanctions would have to be lifted on the day a deal is in place as opposed to a day a deal was signed. And that's a pretty important difference, though, of course, I'd want to hear that from the supreme leader, who is, of course, again, the supreme leader. So I really think my concern at this point is that what Iran is maybe trying to do is to see if they can get a few billion dollars released immediately – you know, uh, once mm-hmm. sanctions are lifted and they have no intention of actually honoring this agreement. And so even if sanctions are put back into place, they still win because they get billions of dollars that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so oh, exa- exactly. And the, the whole idea that there's a, a breakout period, which is, is the most bizarre sort of the uh, if we're going to it's sort of assuming we're going to cheat. Uh, you know, this is this is how we will go about doing it. Um, you know that there's there's essentially a, a one year to uh, uh, to a weapon. I mean, some other other folks. Again, this is in the Kissinger Schultz piece have said that estimate can be you know two to three months to a weapon, uh, up to one year, and also would assume that uh, we know when when they stop complying. Uh, right. My concern with with continued negotiations is that the Iranians are simply buying more time, and the centrifuges are still running. Uh, we are also. Uh, I mentioned this before. We've released funds uh, to them, uh, funds that were frozen uh, in in '79, um, and uh, so they're they're getting money. And, and the other things that j- just are, are, have to be sort of galling: um, the fact that there's a U.S. serviceman uh, still being held by the Iranians, and none of this has has uh, come up uh, that we're willing to to deal with these people who are, who are still essentially holding U.S. hostages. Um, you know, if that's not negotiating with terrorists, I don't know what is. Um, and you know, my last my last bit on this would be uh, the Obama response to what he called the um, you know there's going to be there's going to be the uh, inevitable critics because uh, because everybody's picking on him. Um, but uh, his his resp- the the straw man idea that. The choice is either accept this deal or it's all out war. Um, I think that's just just ridiculous. And um, well, wait, wait a second though. Well, I don't I don't know what the other 
the other option is we either negotiate with them or we don't. And if we don't negotiate them, then they presumably continue doing exactly what they're doing. And then at some point we have to, uh, I would imagine, at some point when we feel that they're very close to getting a weapon, we have to take some sort of action. And if we don't, Israel, of course, will. So I don't know right. if that's, uh, that's uh, unrealistic that, that in the action of negotiation. Be, there can be a whole lot of actions short of a a war where uh, we're sending in ground troops and so forth. I mean, there can be, uh, you know, targeting installations. There can be... Um, we should point out installations that may be, actually not be vulnerable to the sort of weapons that we could drop short of, uh, almost short of nuclear weapons. Well, I don't know. I don't know about all of that, but let's put it this way. We could, we could take out a lot of these centrifuges. Uh, there would be a lot of rebuilding and, and there would be a, a consequence and the Iranians would realize what we want. This is, you know, what the professed policy has been for all these years, is that there will not be a nuclear armed Iran, um, and and we could we can rally a, an international coalition to say that there should not be a nuclear Iran because these guys. Uh, I, I don't. I, I've I've never heard anyone argue credibly that uh, if Iran has a bomb. Uh, that's going to be a good thing. No, nobody thinks that. Uh, or that they'll, they'll handle it really responsibly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they're those kind of guys. But again, I, uh, I think, and this is where we differ, I think that negotiations are the single best way to minimize that possibility, and, and you don't. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not in favor of signing a deal to sign a deal. I think unless it's very clear that our negotiate that sorry that uh, that international uh, uh, you know inspectors have carte blanche access to whatever they want, then I don't think that a deal should be signed because then it would be, to my mind, essentially pointless. And if Iran doesn't want to agree to that, stalling tactic, yeah. right? So if they don't want to agree to that, then I, I, I think that it would be a bad deal to sign. And I would hope that uh, that uh, the State Department would not sign on to something like that. Well, this has been, but they've been negotiating for at this point in various forms twelve years. So, or the Iranians have not agreed to that yet. At what point do you think they're going to make? Well, that I, I think given given the effect that the sanctions have had on their economy, I think there's a lot more pressure to them. It's not like they've all of a sudden decided to become more reasonable. I think the sanctions are really hurting them, and they'd like to do something about that. We will uh, – I think that's one we'll have to just uh, keep an eye on. Okay. Um, but uh, yes, we will uh, We will see. Yes. Yes, we so will. So what else you got? Well, uh, unfortunately, more uh, police misconduct in the news, yes. as I'm sure everyone's familiar with, where uh, uh, an officer in North Charleston, South Carolina, was charged with murder on Tuesday after a uh, a video from a bystander showed him shooting uh, a black man in the back. Uh, when he was running away. Yep. And uh, I don't I don't think that anyone has suggested that this is a justifiable killing, at least not that I have heard. No, no. So, so uh, certainly we can agree this is a, this is a horrific and tragic thing, but what are what do you think the broader consequences are, especially in the wake of the Tamir Rice thing and uh, and, and other incidents and you know in Ferguson and so forth? Uh, what does this say about the state of police conduct in, in, in the United States, would you say? Well, I think we ought to take take Ferguson out of the equation because this is this is uh, a different situation. This is what 
uh, people in Ferguson had essentially had said it happened, which didn't happen. Uh, but here it, it, it plainly did. This is this is a uh, and again, this guy is, of course, uh, presumed innocent until he's proven guilty. But the video Boy, that's a hard is, presumption. Is, but yeah, go ahead. It, it's go a hard. Ahead. Yeah, no, it's it's a legal presumption. But yeah, the video is uh, is is pretty damning, and I don't I don't know how you interpret the video uh, other than he's shooting an unarmed back man who's fleeing in the back. Um, yeah, as, as, as one point, as one person said, uh, that even without the video, it would have been very tough to argue that this was justifiable. One, one person said, you know, one thing they couldn't deny is that the victim had hot five holes in his back. That's, yeah. you know, that's pretty on its on its own is, is pretty uh, insane. Essentially. So, I, you know, I, I think there is there is a problem um, with over policing. And we've we've talked about this before. There was another incident in Cleveland. Uh, just a week or so ago, uh, which involved uh, someone at an you know RTA stop, and there was just sort of a misunderstanding, and then this woman was grabbed by the police and thrown to the ground, and and just you know handled handled much much more roughly than the situation merited. Um, so yeah, and I don't know whether it's it's more training, whether it's body cameras. Um, but yeah, yeah there's, the... there's something going on. But I, I will say, and I think this is this is important to, to note, in this this situation, um, the claims that you heard in, in Ferguson, to some extent in Cleveland, uh, uh, in New York, all oh, then, okay, I, think I would say the New York case, Staten Island case, is closer to this. It's, that's a much tougher uh, case to see where there's any justification. There, then there was also this case also this week in uh, Southern California where some, uh, I think it was 10 deputies, were put on administrative leave because they, uh, a news helicopter filmed them uh, basically uh, kicking a, a suspect who was on the ground and who had surrendered and so forth. So, you know, we, we're seeing, that, it seems like he, we're seeing more and more of these things. Yeah, but that, that suspect, of course, had led them on a two-hour chase. Uh, which involved which, a stolen horse, and you don't hear that. Stealing a horse, yeah, much, yes. Uh, riding the, yes, riding the, the horse into the desert, a horse with no name. Yes, I'm sure. Um, um, but, uh, no, I, I think there ought to be some, some look at, at policing tactics. And the right has, has been, you know, hot and cold on this. I, you know, I've said uh, oh, a couple, couple weeks back, a couple months back, you know, is there going to be sort of a, a libertarian um, – uh, push on the right about uh, uh, over policing because uh, you know this, this is raised now and again, um, and I think so. I, the, the the result um, uh, in South Carolina I think has has been a good one. I mean everyone quickly condemned this. Uh, the guy has been <laughs> fired. He's been arrested. He's been charged, uh, and he's been charged with murder, and he could get the death penalty. Uh, so. You know, it looks. I would say the the problem is is seems to be more in the the intake, and uh, how do these officers get there? Um, and that because I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure it can be a training question. Well, well, to me, it comes back to, and I know it's not a. I, as I said in the blog this week, and uh, for those of you who haven't been following the blog, we we try to post stuff every week, and I, I did some just very quick calculations about body cameras, and you can understand where uh, very. Uh, financially strapped local police departments can't afford not just the body cameras oftentimes the the uh, larger expenses actually the back end stuff the storage of the video and that sort of thing but if my calculations are correct and i think they're reasonably close it would cost the federal government about a billion dollars 
to provide all police, that's federal, state, local, with body cameras, including all the back-end services. A billion dollars a year. Now, that's a big, that sounds like a big number, but in terms of the federal budget, that's nothing. And uh, by way of comparison, we're spending a lot more than that, for instance, in Afghanistan, keeping military troops there right now. And so it seems to me it's a question of what our priorities are. And it's this would not be a super expensive thing. And, and certainly body cameras are not going to tell us everything we need to know all the time. But, you know, in instances where there's, say, a, a police-involved shooting and the body camera, you know, can give us some, I think, can give us some good information. And if the body camera is turned off, I think right that, you know, that in and of itself is... Could raise a presumption. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. I think that's one thing that in the grand scheme of things is not... Uh, all that expensive, really, and certainly could help out. There have been some preliminary studies that have suggested that the use of body cameras not only uh, lowers uh, police uh, misconduct, it also lowers account, uh, citizen complaints and so forth. So this seems to me to be a pretty smart public policy measure that would not be all that expensive, that the benefits would far exceed the costs. And, you know, I would say I am I would not be opposed to that. I guess the cost would be um, an issue. I, I mean, your your estimate is a billion dollars. And again, if that's if that's the case, then, yeah, that's that's not bad. Uh, if you have a much higher quality of, of uh, justice and more accountability, uh, that would be a worthwhile investment. Yeah, because I think things like training courses and, and whatever, I think that that doesn't really get to the the fundamental incentives. I mean, you know, given human nature being what it is. Well, you know, I think, again, with the South Carolina case, at some point you would think, I don't know, do you even need training to say – don't shoot somebody in the back when they're running away from you. Right. I mean that. I mean, it well, seems well, like, let me take another know, case. Not that, you can't say, "Oh, geez, I missed that day." You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, it was sort of- well, the Southern California case, for instance. You know, these guys were on a two and a half hour chase. They were obviously very pissed off, and so it seems like they probably took out some of that aggression and adrenaline on this guy. And again, this is you know just my supposition. But if you know that you are being filmed. That I think yeah. is going to act as a as a break, and that's going to be a much more course, effective break than some training course. Those uh, Southern California deputies did know they were being filmed. You know, it's, it, you got to wonder if they did not maybe hear the helicopter in the background <laughs> or something. I don't know. Helicopters, in my experience, are kind of loud. But then again, who knows? You're 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 running around there and saying, "My God, we're chasing a guy on a horse." Maybe your mind is elsewhere, but. If you have a body camera, I think that's a constant reminder. And so that, to me, again, kind of a no-brainer. Yep. All, All right. right. So uh, on the lighter side of things, you uh, you had a story you wanted to mention. Well, I just want to mention, I think we posted this on the blog, too, the, the White House Easter photo from last year. Yeah. Or last week. Um, it's it's sort of bizarre. I can't decide whether I like it or not. It's it's sort of goofy, just goofy as hell. I think is the best way to put it. It's it pictures uh, President Obama. Uh, it's sort of a, a shot taken from the rear, uh, standing next to the Easter Bunny or someone dressed as the Easter Bunny, who may or may not be Joe Biden, um, staring at the Washington Monument. I like to um, think it is Joe Biden. By the way, it's fun. I think so too. <laughs> sort of the. Just the, the sheer goofiness of this. There is someone in that Easter Bunny suit, and there must be someone somewhere who was asked, like, you know, listen, we need you to dress up as the Easter Bunny and stand next to the president. Um, just the idea we that gig. those words are spoken somewhere in Washington. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, 
um, uh, is, is sort of funny. Um, but uh, Emily Zanotti at the American Spectator described that the picture is sort of a like a movie poster for a a really dark indie comedy that she'll never get to see, <laughs> or that she probably would never uh, want to see. Right? Yeah. Again, this sort of uh, uh, surreal sort of. Uh, and your question is: Is it is it like you know the movie Harvey with uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, where like only he can see the rabbit, the giant rabbit? Uh, uh, can everyone see the rabbit? Uh, you know, is, is the rabbit Joe it, Biden? It um, definitely was an odd choice. So, uh, uh, very, and, and very artsy. for my money, I, I don't necessarily need a White House Easter photo. Um, <laughs> but, I can do without uh, one myself. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my interesting story of the week uh, involves uh, a guy named Robert Mercer. Now, yes, uh, uh, most people probably haven't heard of him, but he is a uh, hedge fund manager on Wall Street, which means he has slightly less money than God. Uh, but he is the guy who is seems primarily responsible for uh, funding Ted Cruz's uh, campaign through four super PACs, which have raised uh, right around $31 million for him. Now, that's mm-hmm. not in, in and of itself all that uh, notable. But what I found interesting was a few years ago, uh, he, uh, Mr. Mercer, sued a company called Rail Dreams. Rail Dreams is a toy train manufacturer, uh, mm-hmm. of all things, sued them for overcharging him for putting in a toy train at this or a model train in his house, mm-hmm. overcharged him, he claims, by $2 million dollars. I would I would say that 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 suit sounds like it would have some merit. <laughs> if anyone charged you uh, two million dollars in excess of what they were I, supposed to charge well, you to I, install a train, I, the, the best I could understand that the, the the train setup, as far as he was concerned, was supposed to cost around seven hundred thousand dollars, and they charged what? him two point seven million. And well, that sounds reasonable. Oh but, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around what that would look like, what kind of, but it just, it just struck me as, I guess if you're a hedge fund manager, you can waste your money on all sorts of things, whether it's a, 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 a just a gigantic model train or it's a ridiculous doomed presidential campaign. It, it, it's good to be a hedge fund manager is the lesson. I well, take and, and if I, yeah, if I'm, if I'm Ted Cruz, well, for, first of all, if, if uh, your main contributor, your main funder is a hedge fund manager, um, that sort of should give your campaign a little bit of a pause in that, look, this guy's job is making long-shot bets. Risky bets, <laughs> yes. Know? And also, by the way, he's got some kind of a weird thing for model trains. It's kind of an obsession. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's not like the it's not like the Cruz campaign. I don't think it was going anywhere. But with uh, with supporters like that, well, you know, anyway. All right. Well, it looks like we're about at that time, Jay. All right. Well, sounds good. And right, so, uh, I will talk to you next week. Okay. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us throughout the week on the Politics Guys blog, which you can find at our website, politicsguys.com, as well as on Twitter, where we tweet throughout the week, and our handle is you probably guessed, Politics Guys. We'll be back next Sunday with another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.